Hi there, I'm your host and current animation student at Sheridan College, Terry Ibell, and welcome to the podcast. Today we are talking about the do's and don'ts of pitching with someone who's likely had a big influence on your childhood, and that is Fred Seibert. Fred is one of the richest backgrounds in the animation industry. He started out at MTV in the 80s and then went on to become the president of Hanna-Barbera. After that, he completely revitalized Nickelodeon into what it is today before founding his own studio, Frederator Studios, which has since produced 19 animated series and hundreds of shorts for Nickelodeon, Cartoon Network, Netflix, and many other channels. Some of those shows include The Fairly Odd Parents, Adventure Time, which is one of my personal favorites, and Bee and Puppycat, just to name a few. So Fred, thank you so much for being here today. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Terry. Thanks for having me. Great, great. So let's kick things off. Um, what kind of stuff did you grow up watching that got you interested in the animation industry in the first place? And while you're at it, maybe you can enlighten us on how you got into the business too. Sure. Well, just briefly, I was the among the first generation of TV watchers. You know, I was born in 1951. I had one of the first televisions in my neighborhood. And the animation that was on was almost entirely recycled uh, theatrical animation. And that went from literally silent Farmer Gray cartoons with loops of music behind it that were just terrible, up through Looney Tunes, Disney, um, uh, the early Hanna-Barbera stuff, which, you know, had a huge impact on me, Huckleberry Hound, Yogi Bear, you know, that type of stuff. And ultimately, you know, the Flintstones, which came out when I was nine, was one of my favorites, you know, of all time. So basically it was the earliest generation of television cartoons from Jay Ward, um, from Hanna-Barbera, and then the recycled theatricals of Tom and Jerry, Looney Tunes, Disney, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so how did you uh, get your start in the animation business? Well, you know, it was a real circuitous route. Um, along with being an early television uh, watcher, I was 12 years old when the Beatles came out and I stopped watching cartoons entirely 100% and started chasing the Beatles and girls. And I um, liked everybody in my generation. I bought a guitar, taught myself guitar and started rock bands. And, you know, in those days, pop culture was determined by pop music, not by movies, not by television. And that was the path I was on. All I wanted to do was make records. And I did that for several years. When I was in college, um, I discovered jazz and added that into my equation, started making jazz and blues records. Um, but I wasn't making much of a living. And so one thing led to another. I got a job in the radio business. Um, and the job in the radio business led me into what was then the very, very early cable TV business. And that led me to being the first employee of MTV or one of the first employees of MTV. Um, and my job was doing the on-air promotions, you know, in between, you know, we think of it now in between shows, but in those days for MTV, it was in between music videos. The problem was since we had no shows, I had very little to promote except for MTV itself. And one of the things, you know, because we were basically the equivalent of radio on television, I asked my boss one day, well, I assume we're not going to have jingles like, you know, top 40 radio. What are we going to do? 
And he said, well, once we have a logo, we can animate it. We can do little funny animations. And I said, okay, great. What, what do you think that means? And he said, well, how about this? Imagine a cow grazing in a field and a giant uh, chainsaw comes and cuts off the cow's head and the cow's head falls to the ground and the veins are sticking out and it's bleeding and the cow opens its mouth and vomits. And in the vomit is our logo. Sounds like, like a hit. <laughs> exactly. I was like, okay, got it. You mean I can do anything we want? He went, right. And so having never done animation before, I literally went to a, a film trade magazine, a commercial magazine, and I wrote down a list of 100 uh, animation companies that made animated commercials around the world, called in their reels, and started meeting animation companies. And one thing led to another, and by the time we were done, we had made, you know, over the next 10 years, 1,000 of these little 10-second animated IDs for MTV, Nickelodeon, Comedy Central, Showtime, the movie channel, you know, like all over the place. And that gave me my first professional exposure to animation. Wow. Yeah. And then, and then so from MTV, how did you get into Hanna-Barbera? Well, make a long story short, I quit my job at MTV really early on because I didn't like working for a corporation, started my own company with a partner. We started doing a lot of this television branding and all that. And we did that for 10 years, did incredibly well, rebuilt Nickelodeon, you know, um, in, helped invent Nick at Night, Comedy Central, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But um, after about 10 years, my partner and I got sick of the job and sick of each other. I quit. I closed the company. And about 24 hours later, a friend of mine at Ted Turner's company called up and said, hey, you know, we just bought Hanna-Barbera. They haven't had a hit in 10 years. Why don't you come and run it? And I was hesitant because I'd never, you know, I'd made little logo animations. And I'd never seen a script or a storyboard for a character. I didn't know really anything about it. And then I looked at my watch, and believe it or not, um, almost coincidentally, my watch had pictures on it of Fred Flintstone, Yogi Bear, Scooby-Doo, and Huckleberry Hound. It was 10.35 in the morning, and I said, I still have three months before I close my company entirely. He said, we'll wait. And the first time I walked into the Hanna-Barbera studio, I was president of the company, having never been there in my life. It was one of the wackiest things that ever happened to anybody. <laughs> so you, <laughs> I mean, yeah, and, and it's obviously been a few years since then, and you've been to Nickelodeon and started Frederator. And I'm wondering, uh, maybe we can talk a little bit more about pitching. Because I know you've seen over the years hundreds and hundreds of pitches. Um, so maybe you can explain. I know you do things a little bit different at Frederator than other studios. Maybe you can explain uh, how that process goes. Sure. So, you know, the the basic form at Frederator is the short cartoon. It's not everything that we do, but more or less starting when I was at Hanna-Barbera, um, I was trying to, and actually even before that, when I was with Nickelodeon, trying to figure out how were the best cartoons in history made. And as I started doing my research, it turned out that at least what I thought were the best cartoons in history all started with a short 
film, usually theatrical short film, whether it was by Disney or Warner Brothers or MGM or who, you know, whoever it was. And I thought that made a lot of sense. It sort of, you know, looped into my music background where, you know, the great albums often started as singles back in the day. You know, the Beatles were contracted to make two sides of a single. And it was based on that single that they got the gig to make their first album, you know. So I like that idea of those short films. And I started talking with people who knew a lot more about animation than I did. And they kind of explained to me that it's less about the idea than the execution, right? Like everybody's got an idea for the, what they think would be a great character and a great story. But 99.99% of great ideas turn into nothing because the people don't know how to execute. And so the conclusion that I came to based on a lot of history, especially with the older animation folks from the 30s and 40s and 50s in Hollywood, was you got to see a storyboard. So at Frederator, what we made as an article of faith is we will take a pitch of any form that anybody wants. But if we're going to make one of these short films, you have to show us actually what is the film going to be. Not what the idea is, not a couple of drawings, but you really need to do a beat board, not a full production storyboard, but basically a, a beat board that shows like all of the dialogue, all of the action, the beginning, middle, and end of the story. And by the way, it has to be the length. You know, if you're going to make a seven-minute film, the board's got to be for a seven-minute film, not for a 20-minute film that you can cut down. So... And then the last piece is we insist that the creator has to actually pitch the thing out loud to us, right? It's not enough just to send in the storyboard because one of the things that we have seen over and over again is that when a creator is pitching that storyboard, you have an idea of how do they want to pace it? How do they want to phrase it? What is the trajectory of the action? What is the rhythm of the action? which a storyboard doesn't give you the entire picture. It really just literally gives you the picture. So figuring out what is in the eye and ear of the creator became really critical to us. So even if, you know, we have a short uh, that has done incredibly well for us this year called The Summoning by a woman named Elise Castro in Brisbane, Australia. We've never met her in person, but she pitched us her storyboard over Skype and we have did all of our production meetings with her over Skype. Um, she, you know, met the showrunner and director, uh, and a timing director, art director, all over Skype. <laughs> um, and so everything is done really person to person all the way along the process. Great. So, uh, with the summoning going forward, are you going to continue to work over Skype with her or are you bringing her in or is she flying down? Are you flying down there? Well, you know, it's a funny thing. I actually have a Skype call with her tonight to discuss just that. But well, there you from, go. <laughs> from what I can gather, she has a day job. She is not a filmmaker by trade, unlike most of the shorts that we make or series that we make. So it's really going to be up to her mm. as to whether she wants to stay in Brisbane and do it that way or whether she wants to come and operate either out of our LA studio or our Vancouver studio. We'll, we'll, that, that is a work in progress. Nice. 
So it sounds like at Frederator, the, the pitches are very personalized and you get a real feel for what the creator has in mind for the show. Um, versus other studios, what is, the, what is the main difference there? Well, you would have to ask other studios. I'll tell you how we think about it, which is we do not think of a show, of a short, of a series as product. We think of it as a filmmaker-driven process. You know, in the fancy-dancy world of uh, feature films, there are some people that could call it the auteur process, but it is not, as much as filmmaking is a collaborative medium, we believe that that collaboration has to have a leader, and that leader to us is always the creator of the picture. And so we give them uh, enormous amounts of... Um, latitude over making the pictures that they want to make because frankly we don't come to it with a preconception of what we think their film should be they come to us with a vision of their film and we look at our job is to support that vision if it if it uh, comes into alignment with what it is we want to accomplish okay um so thinking back to all the pitches that you've seen um what what is a point in the pitch where you immediately go, okay, this is, this isn't going to work out or, or like, what are some of the don'ts uh, for pitching that you, well, that you think of? Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not sure that there is a point that you, you make that decision. Right. Um, I'll tell you from my standpoint, I'm not great at story. I certainly don't know all that much about animation. It's not like I'm an artist or an animator. Um, I'm definitely not a writer. In fact, I, I don't really know how to do much of anything other than watch the film, right? And what I, I, my marker is at the end of the picture, have I fallen in love with a character, right? I would say that, you know, the great majority of the competent pitches we get, remember, we get a lot of pitches from people who have literally no idea what they're doing. But if you take all those people out of the mix and you look at all of the people who are very capable at various tasks along the way of making an animated film, that 99% of what we reject is because the characters just aren't there. You're not in love or, as Eric Homan, my development colleague, says, it's not characters you want to hang around with, right? And, you know, to me, by the way, whether it is animated uh, video or um, dramatic television, like I personally watch a lot of crime television, right? It's all about whether there are characters that you want to spend your time with over and over and over again, episode after episode, binge after binge. Are these characters that you have some kind of feeling for that you want to spend more time with? And by the way, that can be comedy characters like, you know, the great majority of the work that we do. It can be dramatic characters like our series at Castlevania and, you know, whether it is Trevor Belmont or Dracula or it's uh, the Sopranos or Peaky Blinders, right? No matter who these characters are, even if they're evil and weird and violent and murderous, if you want to spend time with them, you know, that makes a great show, a great film and something that you want to keep working with. That's how we look at it. Who are the great characters? Who are the great stories? Interesting. So, I mean, I've come across a lot of advice, especially online, like get to the action right away or introduce this element and blah, blah, blah. And you're kind of saying there's no hard and fast rules. It's just by the end, 
do I do it? Did I fall in love with the characters? Do, is this something I would watch? Yeah, because every filmmaker does what they do. You know, it, it's interesting if you look at the first short that Penn Ward pitched us for Adventure Time, which, by the way, I need to always say I turned down originally, right? It gets into, it It introduces you to the characters in the first frames of the film. And within 30 seconds, by the way, you're in love with those characters with Penn and Jake, and actually Finn and Jake is in the series. And, but... On the surface, if you look at that short, it does not follow any rules of filmmaking. Interestingly, if you really get down to it and analyze it, it follows every rule. But Penn Ward's, one of Penn Ward's many brilliant capabilities is not making it seem like it's a natural progression of a film. It doesn't work the way that films obviously work. But ultimately, from our standpoint, from my standpoint, there are no rules other than, do I want to see more of these films? Do I want to see more of these characters? There are a lot of rules. And by the way, they're not bad rules to pay attention to when you're initially trying to think about stuff. But in the final analysis, if you don't have an instinct for the rhythm of a film, for the trajectory of a story, for how to establish your characters early, for how to make the story ebb and flow in such a way that you stay interested as a viewer. You know, nothing else really. You can follow every rule in the book. I, I actually had a colleague who shall go unnamed now that he would hand me a script. This is long before I got into animation. And I would read the script and he'd go, what do you think? I go, it's okay. And he'd get really mad at me and start pointing out that it followed every rule of a sitcom. I'm like, okay, it followed every rule. I just didn't care. And then he like literally throw something at me, right? Because he did follow every rule. He had analyzed everything perfectly. He just hadn't brought those characters to life in, in retrospect. You know, when I look back on it now, he didn't make me care. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's interesting because uh, what you're saying is like the end product should make you feel something afterwards rather than like, Oh, I think, you know, this kind of uh, action is trending right now where these characters are popularized in style or whatnot. It's more or less like, did I actually feel something at the end? I always joke that we are incapable at our shop of following trends and that the result has been over a 20 plus year period we have ended up creating trends because what we're really interested in, aside from great characters and great stories, which is, by the way, true, again, whether you're doing a multi-hour crime drama or you're doing a six-minute short, great characters and great stories is always the bedrock. But ultimately, we're looking for people who have original voices, who speak in the, their, their stories and characters speak in such a way you go, boy, that's something I've been waiting for this my entire life. You know, that's one of the reasons we love being puppycat so much is anyone who listens to being puppycat, aside from relating to B, you know, and her and her friends, you know, perfectly, there's something and I don't mean in the acting voice, I mean in the voice of the film that makes you just really you want you want to spend time with these characters and you really do feel like you are in it with them 
And, you know, while the conventional wisdom for the last 15 or 20 years we've been trying this is that young women have no interest in animation, we keep saying it's because, you know, often it's not young women making animation, it's, you know, men making animation for young women from a male point of view. And by the way, most of the television networks and um, movie companies work off of the premise, oh, you don't want a female hero. You know, there's like there's all this BS that comes out of people. And Natasha Allegri, who's the creator of being Puppy Cat, didn't know any of those rules. She just wrote down the film that she wanted to make. And we fell for it immediately. When we put out the first short, the audience fell for it immediately. It's because it was fresh, it was new, and it was wonderful characters and wonderful stories. Right. Um, so I know you, you talked a little bit about this uh, before this podcast episode with me, but um, why shouldn't animation students pitch specifically uh, as an animation student? And obviously a lot of the listeners are going to be animation students, but you, you said that you don't think animation students should pitch shows. Well, you know... Um... First of all, I, you know, look, everybody would like to have something with their name on it and, and create uh, the next Adventure Time or the next SpongeBob or the next Mickey Mouse, you know, whatever it might be. I so understand that I was the same way when I was young. You know, I wanted to be the next Beatles. But the truth is, is that except in rare exceptions, and there are great exceptions, Filmmaking is a collection of life and experience. It's the way that you find great characters and great stories. And usually students are students for a really good reason, which is they are still in the process of learning and they are still in the process of becoming, you know, just as human beings. And additionally, animation has one other complication to it, which is it is a very craft-based um, art form. In addition to the characters and stories, there is craft that is involved. And as you know, as an animation student yourself, there are the thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of drawing that you need to do to get that craft to the place that you need it to be. And if the if your craft was already there, you probably wouldn't be an animation student, <laughs> you know. So I think that you know often the best thing to do is to learn everything you can about that craft, and then get some kind of mentorship under story people, right? In addition to artist people, so that you can figure out like how do you structure a story, how do you best tell a story, how do you figure out a way to come up with a hundred stories before you find the one that really resonates with you. And in rare exceptions, we have been lucky enough to have some of those exceptions. Most of the films that we make, we've made 250 shorts over the years. Almost all of them have been made by people who have some filmmaking experience under their belt and not just personal filmmaking experience, but also professional and commercial filmmaking experience. And so my recommendation always is to really like get involved in productions of other people and watch carefully. What do they do right? What do they do wrong? What do you agree with? What do you disagree with? So you can start to form your own perspective 
before you go out selling shows. Because I got to tell you, having tried to sell shows multiple times over the years, even now, there is nothing more distressing and demotivating than a rejection. And I'd rather that someone is rejected after they have their feet solid under their themselves rather than they're still trying to figure out their balance. Makes sense. Is that, is that what I said, by the way, before? Uh, I, along I, the lines of it, yeah. Um, I really liked what you said about finding a story person uh, and an art person to mentor under. I think that's really great advice, too. Um, and maybe uh, if if you can think of some offhand, what are some of the biggest myths that come along with with pitching and the story and all that stuff that uh, maybe need to be dispelled? I mean, you're somebody who's got a lot of firsthand experience from the other side of things, right? So, well, you know, I, I think I can only tell it from my perspective, right? Um, so I'll give you a couple that just rankle me in particular. Okay, shoot. This is the next Adventure Time. Or this is the next SpongeBob. What do I need the next one for? I already got the first yes, one, right? Or the world already has there. I, I don't have SpongeBob, but you know, if the world already has SpongeBob, what do we need the next one for, right? Uh, we, at yeah. least in our shop, is we're looking for the next original voice, not the next version of something that somebody's already done. The other thing that happens, I would say, in a lot of our pitches is somebody comes in, they pitch us whatever, the characters, the story, whatever it might be, and they start telling us about the t-shirts and the video games and the toys. And they've drawn them out and they've shown them and they go, this show is going to have the greatest merchandising ever. And my point of view is that making a show itself is next, that's great is next to impossible. So every minute of your time that you're spending working on things that aren't the show itself, to me means that you're distracted from making the show as great as it can be. And by the way, whether something sells a lot of merchandise or doesn't is not relevant to the value of the film. And again, I'll give you a great example. We made the first short for the Fairly Odd Parents in 1998. It went on the air as a series in 2001. It went out of production in 2018. It has never sold any merchandise. It's one of the most successful animated shows in Nickelodeon history, but it was not a successful merchandising play. Another example, um, the very first series I got deeply involved in was Dexter's Laboratory. It also never sold any merchandising. The art director on that film and the director became the creator and producer of another series called The Powerpuff Girls. The Powerpuff Girls didn't do as well in the ratings, but did unbelievably in the merchandise. Dexter's never sold any merchandise. You know, they're, they're, every part of the business has its own little quirks, and merchandising is no different. Um, interestingly, Adventure Time did really well in merchandising, even though the conventional wisdom is that comedy series don't do well in, in toys and merch. But most of the toys and merch didn't sell to kids. Most of it sold to people like you. Yep. <laughs> right? So, you know, you just can't say that a great show will always do well in merchandising or a show that did work well in merchandising is a great show. They don't, they don't fit together. 
So those are two of my bugaboos, you know, like don't be the next thing and just don't tell me about all the stuff. Just tell me about your film. Right. And, and I was going to ask you what the animation world needs more of or who it needs more of, but it kind of sounds like you already answered that with the unique voices um, answer. So well, look, there's-, the, there's another thing, though, is the animation business can't all be chiefs. It needs lots of Indians, too. And, you know, there are people who will never be happier than to animate all day long. There's other people who couldn't be happier than to design characters all day long or to write stories all day long or to color in characters and come up with color palettes all day long. We are a collaborative medium and not everybody can run the ship. But the business needs all kinds. It doesn't just need creators. We, we in our shop happen to focus on creators and we believe in creators. But those creators are nothing without the crew that, you know, that they have. It's kind of like a symphony orchestra. It's great that we have Beethoven and Bach. But, you know, you need people to uh, play that stuff, too. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, so... How does somebody get into, or what advice do you have for somebody to get into the mindset of pitching after after kind of everything you've said, like what research or exploration should they do? Um, is it, I, I mean, you said like, look for your kind of unique voice. So is there a lot of um, figuring out your own style and, and stuff first or? Well, on, on the creative side, you know, there, there are two different parts of the process. There's the creation and then there's the selling. And honestly, they don't resemble each other, right? So on the creation side, it's you just got to keep working until you got something you really believe in. You know, I always say to people, come up with 100 shows before you pitch one of them. And you got to write them out and you have to come up with episodes and really write films. You know, if you're a screenplay writer, you got to write 100 screenplays before you're ready to go out into the world with one. That is something that especially um, uh, someone who is of student age uh, is not interested in hearing because they want to go out now. You're young and that's exciting and you want to be in the game, right? But the truth is, is that, uh, you know, what's Malcolm Gladwell's thing if you got to do 10,000 hours? That's true about any side of anything that any of us do. So that's the first thing on the creation side. You got to get it to the place where you're ready. On the selling side is understanding that a bunch of things are going on. First of all, the likelihood that the first thing that you sell is going to work or get sold is probably a pipe dream for most of it. Certainly didn't happen to me. I was pitching things for 10 years before I ever got a yes, right? And so persistence is really part of the sales process. The other thing that uh, someone explained to me when I was starting out in essence, when you're going and pitching, you're asking the person that you're pitching for a check. And that check can be, if it's for a series, can be five or $10 million. And you know, the chances are the person that you're pitching does not have five or $10 million. They're getting that money from their boss or their boss's boss or their boss's boss's boss or their boss's 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 boss. And they have to explain to the person who gives them the check that they're giving to you why they did it and interestingly believe it or not it isn't just because they love the show it's because they have a feeling about that creator that they believe that they 
can handle a check of $5 million or $10 million. So a lot of that is creating a relationship with the person who you are pitching to. And it might not be the first show you pitch. It might not be the third show you pitch. It might be the fifth or 10th show you pitch. And creating a relationship with the people who are buying is often as important as creating the show. And so there is the 10,000 hours of figuring out how to make wonderful shows. And then there are X thousand hours of creating relationships with the people who are buying. And, you know, the chances are somebody you go to school with might end up becoming a buyer. So you should look at the person to the left of you, to the right of you, in front of you, behind you, and figure out who are the people you're in school with that you are going to create long-term relationships with. It's not a mistake. The guy who designed the MTV logo for me, I've known since I was four years old. And, you know, I got the assignment to make that logo when I was 28 years old. And he was the first guy I thought of to go to. And here we are. I'm 67 years old. He's 68 years old. And we are still doing things together. My partner, my creative partner at MTV, who eventually became my partner in my branding and ad agency business, he and I have known each other since we worked together at College Radio. And we worked on a million projects together before we ever did anything professional. And here we are. Yesterday, my team and I had a brainstorming meeting with him, you know, almost 50 years after I met him. So, you know, the chances are that the relationships that you are starting to form now, some of them could turn into long-term collaborative relationships both on the creative side and interestingly on the selling and buying side and nurture those relationships like they are gold because the chances are they could turn into that for you. I've heard that a lot actually in the, in the program. I mean, um, just uh, a quick question about uh, the pitching and pitching five or 10 times. Do you find that you see some of the same people come back and pitch to Frederator? over the years and, and uh, do they get better? And have you accepted some of the later pitches from them or? Yeah, well, look, yeah, I mean, there are two different kinds. There's one guy who pitched me the same show for 10 years and it wasn't that good the first time and it was no better the last time, right? <laughs> um, there are people who pitch you over and over again and honestly, the majority of them the first thing they pitch might be the best and they slowly go downhill from there, right? Then there's the case of Butch Hartman. So Butch Hartman was worked for me at Hanna-Barbera in what we called the model department. He was uh, creating, you know, he was designing characters and doing storyboards. And when we announced our first shorts project, which was called What a Cartoon, he was one of the first guys in the door after a lot of delay, a lot of people were scared of the short show that something like that had never existed in the business and they didn't know what to do. And he showed up, pitched us a short. It was a wonderful pitch. I said, yes, it turned into one of the worst films we've ever made because he was inexperienced. But he came back again a couple months later with a new pitch. Also was a great pitch. We made the picture. It was probably the second worst film we've ever made, but it was better than the first. He did that a number of other times. Each film got a little bit better, 
but somehow or other, they weren't as good as the pitches. And one day I, I said to him, you know, you're so great at pitching your picture. How come the picture itself doesn't turn out that way? He goes, well, you know, every time I've pitched you, there's something I'm not very good at. And I don't find out that I'm not very good at it until we make the film. So at that point, I just figure out how am I going to get better at that thing that I'm not good at. And I will tell you, he's the rare exception that every time out, he got better and better and better until he came to us with the Fairly Odd Parents, which was not just a winner, but was, again, one of the top-rated shows in the history of Nickelodeon. But often, people don't get better because they don't realistically look at what went wrong the first time and try to improve on that thing they maybe weren't so good at. He is one of the hardest, you know, there's, there was a famous soul singer named James Brown who was known as the hardest working man in show business. Butch Hartman is a close second. Maybe he's even harder working. <laughs> Interesting. All right. Um, so I had a bunch of questions about, you know, kind of advice you have for, for students such as myself. And, you know, number one thing to think about as I go forward into the years and eventually want to pitch a show or whatnot. Um, yep. Just well, so here, here, here's the thing. You live in a world that I did not come up in. You live in a world where there are audiences of billions of people who, with an email address, you can reach. You can put your film on YouTube. You can put something on Instagram. You can put it on your Twitter feed. And there are millions, literally billions of people waiting on the other side of your email address for what it is that you have to say. And you can get a real-life experience of making a film, putting it out in the world, and getting real feedback on that film to improve. The great thing is, if your film stinks, probably no one will see it. And it goes into a world of billions and billions of little snippets of video that will be ignored. So you don't need to feel bad if it didn't work. But you can learn from that experience. The other thing that I've noticed is that the first time somebody gets a day job, you know, in an animation studio and stuff, they stop making their own stuff. They're like, you know, this is great. I have a job. I'm getting paid. And they sort of leave their own filmmaking behind. Um, in this day and age where technology is available to all of us for, you know, 25 or $50 that allows us to do animation in a way that doesn't require, you know, what, you know, old Oxbury stands and film and development and editing things and all that. Like, you can do everything yourself. The idea that somebody leaves their own films behind for their day job but expect to get a series is really, you know, to me, just tragic. And the truth is people really stop working on their own work often when they get a nice paycheck that allows them to go out and party all the time or give themselves nice dinners or, you know, do whatever it is they do with their money. So my point of view is even if you get a great job when you're out of school is keep working on your own stuff because the only thing that's going to get better about your filmmaking is if you just keep working at it, be persistent. Okay. Well, thank you. Um, one last question. Are there any cool projects that you're working on that you want to talk about or? Things there randomly so, want to say? There are so many cool projects that we're working on Too that many. I'm not going to tell you about any of them. <laughs> um, 
And part of that is, look, you know, the, the reality is, is, you know, if you ask, it's a rare parent that you ask, you know, which of your kids do you like more? And the truth is, is that every film we make is really special. It's special to the filmmaker and therefore needs to be special to us. Um, and we look at them, you know, all as really sort of special items that we have been involved in. In terms of literally what's coming up, um, we uh, have a second series of Being Puppycat, a brand new format, a brand new series that will be out um, in April, May, that period of time. Uh, we have announced a third season of Castlevania that will be coming out uh, worldwide on Netflix uh, sometime toward the end of the year. There's not a date that's been set yet for it. Um, we have a series based on another video game for kids called Costume Quest that was developed by a video game company in San Francisco that we love, an indie company called Double Fine. And that will be out on Amazon uh, worldwide uh, sometime near the beginning of the year, somewhere between January and March, you know, somewhere in that period of time. Um, series isn't quite finished yet. And then oodles and oodles of other things. Uh, our colleagues at Rainmaker, um, you know, launched three animated series on Netflix this year. Um, uh, the reboot of Reboot, the Barbie uh, Dreamhouse series, the first Barbie series uh, that's ever been put out, and an animated Spy Kids. And they're on work on, on a bunch of projects that are going to go out too. So, all that stuff's exciting, and then there's more. <laughs> you guys are busy. I didn't. I didn't realize that there was going to be a reboot of reboot. I'm going to be very interested in seeing that when it comes out. <laughs> yeah, I think in Canada, in Canada, it's on YTV, uh, right. and eventually will hit Netflix. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much, Fred. It's been a real pleasure to have you on this podcast. Terry, thanks so much. Uh, best of luck. I, I hope we talk again. Thank you so much. Uh, now, just before we leave, I want to share how to get in touch with Fred if you have more questions. And that is very simple. You can just send him an email, just like I did, at fred at And that's all for now. Okay, bye.